0: Early in the afternoon on May 20, 2000, in a large field outside of Memphis, Tennessee, a preacher in his mid-50s, dressed in his signature herringbone sports coat and black tie, took his place behind the lectern to address a crowd of more than 40,000 college students. The air was chilly, the wind brisk, and a light rain began to fall. The crowd of students were restless, They'd already set through many morning sessions. To escape the damp, students held their rain jackets over their heads. Several used the moment to get up and go for a walk or go back to their tents. Not an auspicious beginning for a generation-defining moment. The speaker, understandably, looked a little flustered. He was trying to shield the temperamental mic from the whipping wind with one hand and hold down his notes with the other. And just a few minutes into his sermon, a gust of wind came and blew half of his notes off the lectern and into the crowd. The message was not going well. The man quietly prayed, Father in heaven, you know how inadequate I feel at this moment. And so I ask for a very special anointing and help from you. He took a deep breath and then leaning down on the lectern, pinning his remaining notes down with his arm he said this, three weeks ago, we got word at our church that Ruby Elyson and Laura Edwards had both been killed in Cameroon. Ruby was over 80, single all her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes failed, the car went over the cliff, and they were both killed instantly. And I asked my people in my church, was that a tragedy? Well, the young people there responded and said, no, no, the the preacher echoed. That is not a tragedy, that is a glory. I'll tell you what a tragedy is. Well, then the preacher pulled out a page from the Reader's Digest that read, Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago, when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. He continued, the American dream is this, come to the end of your life, your one and only life, and let the last great work before you give an account to your creator be this, I collected shells. See my shell collection. He said, that is a tragedy. And today people are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you. Don't buy it. Don't waste your life. Now that is not just the American dream. That is also the Australian dream. Get a good enough job so that you can retire early. Buy a weekender somewhere on the coast And live a life of ease in your retirement years. Because you don't want to waste your life. You want to live your life. If you've ever seen that uh, ad by Boating, Camping, Fishing, the ad says, this ain't living. And then it goes on to give you all these images of what they believe true living is. It's all about getting outside and making the most of the outdoors. In other words, living for the weekend, living for your pleasure. But what a tragedy in light of eternity Yes, if this life is all there is, then try and hold on to as much of it for as long as you can. Make it your ambition to build up your shell collection. But if this life is not the end and there is eternal life, then as Pastor Graham quoted from Jim Elliot a few weeks ago, he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I wonder, are you still trying to hold on to that which you cannot keep? Have you bought into the Australian dream? Are you living out the script that our society has written for you? Well, the people whom God uses, they've had an encounter with the eternal, a counter, an encounter that has reordered all of their priorities, and they are never the same again. Well, we're continuing our series this morning in the book of Exodus called Becoming a Person Whom God Can Use, and we are up to Exodus chapter 3 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Exodus chapter 3 this morning. Just recapping what we've learned so far, in our first lesson, we learnt that if you want to become a person whom God can use, then you must honor God above all else, even though it may be costly, even though it may be difficult. The people whom God uses honor his word above all else because they fear the Lord and they love the Lord above all else. Then last week, we learned that the people whom God uses are people of character and their character is forged through their family of origin and the failures that they have experienced. And the people whom God uses, they don't get caught up in issues from the past, but they bring their own sin And the brokenness of their past to the cross so that they can be healed by Jesus. So they can become his instruments of healing in the lives of others. And now today we come to our third lesson in our series, Becoming a Person Whom God Can Use. And as I said, I'm going to give you the lesson each and every week right up front. So here is our third lesson. The people whom God uses, they turn aside when God interrupts their lives And they turn back to him in surrender, choosing to go where he is sending them because they are assured that his presence will go with them, his favor will be upon them, and his power will be displayed through them. Let me say that again. The people whom God uses, they turn aside when God interrupts their lives and turn back to him in surrender, choosing to go where he is sending them because they are assured that his presence will go with them. His favor will be upon them, and his power will be displayed through them. Now, as we come into Exodus chapter 3, we see that God interrupts Moses' life to get him to turn aside. Now, last week, we saw that Moses had fled into the wilderness of Midian after trying to deliver the nation of Israel in his own strength. As Stephen, the great martyr, said in his commentary on the life of Moses, in Acts, 7, in Acts 7, that it was when Moses was 40 years of age that it came upon his heart to see how his people were doing. And he thought that he would be able to deliver them by his own hand. But as we saw last week, he was a complete failure. And not even the person who he was trying to deliver wanted his deliverance. And so he fled into the wilderness of Midian. And there he married the daughter of the high priest of Midian, Zipporah, and he had a son. To her named Gershom. But get this, now 40 years had passed and it would have been quite natural for Moses to think that this was his life now. He was a shepherd living a quiet life in the wilderness of Midian, tending his father-in-law's sheep. But it was while he was doing this very thing as we read in verse 1 that the flock just so happened to come to the west side of the wilderness and to Horeb, The mountain of God. And it was while Moses was at Horeb, also called Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, that we read this down in verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Now, the angel of the Lord, or the angel of Yahweh, is a bit of a mysterious figure in the Old Testament. You see, this angel was not just any angel because, as we'll see later in the narrative, he speaks as though he is Yahweh himself, as though he is the Lord himself. You see, the word for angel in Hebrew can simply mean messenger. So this is the messenger of the Lord. But still, this messenger of Yahweh or this messenger of the Lord, as we have seen, as we're going to see, you know, he speaks as though he is the Lord. Which is why many early church fathers, they viewed the angel of the Lord as an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, they accounted the angel, they equated the angel of the Lord with Jesus. And you will notice that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. This is what is known as a theophany. This is a visible appearance of the invisible God. God here is manifesting himself as a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. Now, all throughout the Bible, God's presence is represented with fire. For example, the people of Israel would later be led uh, by God in the wilderness by a pillar of fire by night. Or at Mount Sinai, when they, after the Exodus, when they came to Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, when the people were assembled before the Lord, God came down on the mountain with fire; and that was a symbol of His presence. Or in the New Testament, at the Day of Pentecost, when the Spirit was given, we read how um, tongues of fire appeared over the 120 believers that were gathered. So, fire is a it represents God's awesome presence. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? That what do we say to our kids? We we warn our kids about the danger of playing with fire. We say to our kids, if you play with fire, you you may get burnt. And we say that because fire is a serious thing. And so fire is a good representation of the character of God. God is holy and his holiness is not to be messed with. But there is something about this bush that was unusual. Notice it says in verse 2, he looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. You know, God's holiness is not a destructive force. It does not destroy that which it indwells. Now, look down in verse 3. We see how Moses responded. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. You know, Moses recognized that this was something unusual, something out of the ordinary. So he turned aside to investigate. You see, God was interrupting his life to get his attention so that he would turn aside and ask questions. I have a question for you. Does God still interrupt our lives to get us to turn aside and pause from our daily routines? Well, yes, I believe he does. But he doesn't use a burning bush anymore. He does it now through his son, And through those in whom his son indwells. You see, the the burning bush is a perfect representation of who Christ is and who we are now as Christians because we are in Christ. You see, in the incarnation, Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was the invisible God made visible. As Paul says in Colossians 2 and verse 9, "...for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily." He was fully human, but God indwelt him. And through him, his holy presence burnt brightly. And John the Baptist said of Jesus, there is one coming after I, who is greater than I, of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And he said, when he comes, he will baptize his followers with the Holy Spirit and with what? With fire. You see, when you become a Christian, You get baptized with the Holy Spirit and you become a burning bush. God's holy presence comes to indwell you, to radiate out through you. So how does God interrupt our lives and get us to turn aside from our ordinary routines? Well, it's by giving us an encounter with the holiness of Jesus through his word and through people, people like you and me who are burning bushes, whose God's holy presence is radiating out from. You know, you come to church or you come to a community group or you're reading the Bible for yourself and the penny drops and you see something about Jesus that you haven't seen before. And it causes you to pause, to stop, to reevaluate the priorities of your life. Or you have a friend and recently you've observed that they're different, that they have changed, they're not the same person. That they used to be there's something that they have that you don't have and you need to investigate you need to find out you know peter Pollock has told his story of how he became a christian many times at our church you see peter had everything going for him he had national fame because he was one of south africa's greatest fast bowlers he had money because he was a successful businessman And although he had all these things going for him, there was something lacking in his life. And he came home late one evening from work and he expected his wife to be upset as she usually was when he was late and he didn't tell her. But this time there was nothing. She didn't nag him. She didn't bring it up, the fact that he was late and didn't tell her. She just served him his dinner and loved him in a way that he didn't deserve. And he said to himself, there's something different about this woman. This woman has changed. And he found out later that she had become a Christian, not a religious person, but she had received Jesus into her life. And now she was different. She had become a burning bush. And this caused, her, this caused him to turn aside and investigate the reason why she was so different. And it later led him to become... Become a Christian. You see, God interrupts our lives, and the way He does it is through encounters with His Word and with His people who have now become burning bushes in whom His holy presence indwells. But you'll notice that it was only after Moses turned aside to see the burning bush that God spoke to him. Look down in verse 4, we read, When the Lord saw that he had turned aside, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. You see, I think for Moses, Moses had been out of fellowship with God for the past 40 years. At the age of 40, he had refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and he had tried to deliver Israel in his own strength, but he had failed. But when he turned aside to see the burning bush and the Lord called his name Moses, Moses, he responded in the typical way that people respond in the Old Testament with surrender. He said, here I am. I wonder, are you living out of fellowship with the Lord today? And do you need to respond with those words? Lord, here I am. You see, that's the way that Abraham in Genesis 22 responded when God called his name. When God said, Abraham, Abraham said, here I am. And that's the way that Samuel responded. When the boy Samuel was called to by the Lord, when the Lord said, Samuel, Samuel, he said, here I am, Lord, your servant is listening. And that's the way Isaiah responded when he saw the Lord high and lifted up and the glory of God was filling the temple. And the Lord said, whom shall I send for us? Isaiah said, here I am. Send me. And that's exactly how you should respond when you turn aside and the Lord calls your name. You should say, Lord, here I am. I surrender to you. You see, before God can use anyone, they first need to turn back to him in surrender. You know, often the reason that God can't use us is because we don't allow him to. You know, God is a gentleman. He's not going to force anyone to be his servant he just simply invites us and calls our name now notice in verse 6 that the lord says to moses i am the god of your father the god of abraham the god of isaac and the god of jacob now this is the gospel according to the old testament you know moses was not accepted because of his works but because of the covenant that God had made with the patriarchs, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and you and I, we are not accepted by God because of our works, but it's solely because of the work of Jesus, because of the new covenant that Jesus has made with his blood. So we don't surrender to earn our salvation or to earn acceptance with God. No, we surrender to God because he is holy and gracious. Because of His holiness, His holiness demanded perfection, but that perfection was met by His grace poured out for us through Jesus on the cross. And so we do what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of what God has done for us in Christ, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Is that what you need to do today? Do you need to offer yourself to God again as a living sacrifice? Well, verse 5 is very interesting. Look down at verse 5. God says to Moses, Do not come near. Take the sandals off your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Now, why did God want Moses to take off his sandals so that there would be nothing between his feet? And the holy ground on which he was standing. Well, here's the thing about God's holiness. When people in the Bible come in contact with God's holiness, they're either consumed or they are purified. And by getting Moses to take off his sandals so that there was nothing standing between the holy ground and his feet, I think that what the Lord was doing is he was wanting to purify Moses' feet. He was getting Moses to consecrate his feet to him. But why did God want Moses' feet? Well, it was because the Lord was going to send Moses on a mission. As we read down in verses 7 to 9, the Lord had heard the cries of his people and he knew their suffering. And he had come down to deliver them out of Egypt and bring them into a good land, a broad land flowing with milk and honey. And Moses, and he says to Moses in verse 10, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And this is why God wanted Moses' feet, because he was sending him. This is why he wanted his feet, because your feet are the instrument that you use to go any place where you are going. You know, as Isaiah says, how blessed are the what? How blessed are the feet of those who bring the good news? Why are feet such a blessing? Because when they are given to God, they become the instrument that takes you where God is wanting to take you. I wonder, have you given your feet to God? And have you said to him, Lord, my feet are yours? I will go where you send me. You know, I've been in Adelaide now for 10 years. And we are here because my wife, Tegan, was willing to give her feet to the Lord 10 years ago. 10 years ago, I was a worship pastor in Perth. And this church in Adelaide, um, Oakton Baptist Church, which is what it was called at the time, was looking to the Lord for a new senior pastor. And I saw their advertisement and I applied. Now, after our first conversation, I didn't think it would be a good fit. And so I told Pastor Paul and the other elders, no, we don't feel the Lord is leading us to be the senior pastor of um, Oak to Baptist Church at this time. But then a few months later, Pastor Paul rang me up and asked me again to reconsider. And I prayed about it some more and actually came for a visit by myself to the church. I preached on Sunday. I met with the elders and met with some of the other people. And on the way to the airport, Pastor Paul, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said to me, I think God is calling you to be our pastor. And I knew in my heart that that was true. I felt that God was calling me to come to Adelaide and serve him as the senior pastor of Oakton Baptist Church. But I thought, how am I going to explain this to Tegan? You see, Tegan had always longed to return to Queensland. We had come from Queensland, and for the previous eight years, we'd been abroad. First, we'd been studying in the United States, and then we'd been pastoring over in Western Australia in Perth. So I knew that she wasn't going to be all that keen on moving to Adelaide. And when I got off the plane from my trip to Adelaide, Tegan greeted me, and she said, I don't want you to talk to me about it. We've just had a baby, and I need some time. And so I didn't. I just said to the Lord, Lord, if you're calling us to go to Adelaide, then you're gonna have to speak to my wife, Tegan. And for two weeks, I said nothing to her about my trip to Adelaide, and how I believed that God was calling us there. Well, one night after church, Tegan was sitting in the congregation, and the service had been all about missions all about going where God was sending you. And the final song that the worship leader had chosen for that night was a song with these lyrics. Lord, I will go where you send me. Jesus, take me now, I am yours. And as Tegan sang those lyrics, she did what most of us do most of the time. She sang them without really thinking about the meaning. When all of a sudden, as she was singing, a girl got up in front of her with this T-shirt and on the T-shirt, it read, I love Adelaide, to which Tegan thought, well, you may, but I don't. And then she went back to singing, Lord, I will go where you send me. Jesus, take me. Now I am yours. And she said that in that moment, she knew that God was calling us to Adelaide and that she had to surrender to him. She gave her feet to the Lord and said, God, I will go wherever you are sending me. You know, I wonder, have you ever given your feet to the Lord? Are you willing to go wherever the Lord is sending you? Now, for some of you, that may mean a radical reorientation of your whole life. Because God might be sending you abroad in foreign missions. You know, there are still thousands of unreached peoples around the world. And we all need to consider whether God is calling us to leave our comfort in pursuit of spreading his fame among the nations. But maybe that's not you. Maybe God is just calling you to give up your comfort and the Aussie dream and go across to your neighbor and invite them to our Good Friday service. Or maybe he's calling you to go and become a good friend to a work colleague so that later in the year when we have the Alpha course, you can invite them along to Alpha. You know, there are some members of our church who I recently heard that when they were choosing a primary school for their kids, they intentionally chose to send their child to a public school. Now, I have nothing against private Christian schools. All my, all my girls have gone to Cedar College, and it's been great for them. You know, Christian schools like Cedar or Hope and Emmaus, they do a great job in sharing the gospel with the community. But, but this family told me that they intentionally chose to send their, their kids to a local public school so that they could meet other non-Christian parents in the area and be a witness for Jesus in that school. You know, what have they done? They've given their feet to Jesus. Are you willing to give your feet to the Lord and go where he is sending you on mission? Well, I think that part of the reason why I resist and maybe why you resist surrendering to Jesus and going where he is sending us, part of the reason we resist is because like Moses, we have a number of objections You see, even though Moses had encountered the holiness of God and God had called him to surrender his feet and to go where he was sending him, Moses still had a number of objections. The first objection we read of Moses is down in verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? As I said, 40 years before, Moses had failed at being God's deliverer. And so it was quite natural that he would feel completely inadequate for the task. Maybe that's how you feel about sharing the gospel. You feel completely inadequate. You know, you, you might say, I could understand how God wants to use you, Pastor Timon, or Pastor Graham, or Pastor Jeff, or Pastor Ollie, or Pastor Vincent, or Pastor Jeremy, or Pastor Paul. But I just don't know what to say. And I get nervous. I'm not good with words. But you notice what God says to Moses in verse 12? He says, but I will be with you. You know, imagine if you had to fight a bully at school. Just imagine there was this bully bullying you. And you knew the only way to stop him was to stand up to him. Just imagine the terror that would be in your heart that morning that you knew that you had to face him. But just imagine on that very morning that you're going to face that bully, your older brother says, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to back you up. How different would that make you feel? Especially if your brother was an expert in Miyagi-do karate and knew the flying kick. (laughs) You would no longer be terrified. But in fact, you would probably be looking forward to the bully getting what is coming to him. Now, what's made the difference? Well, you're no longer going alone. Your older brother is going to be present with you, fighting for you. You know, this is what God means when he says that he will go with us. It doesn't just mean that he's going to be present with us, but it means that he will fight for us on our side. I I once heard someone say that when David faced Goliath, Goliath was a giant and came dressed in armor, David was just a boy and all he had was a sling, but he came in the name of the Lord. And this person I heard said, it was never a fair fight. Goliath never stood a chance. You know, Jesus gave the great commission and at the end he said, behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. This promise of his presence is not just to assure us that we are never alone, But he was promising that he would be right there with us, working for us, on our side. And so Satan and our enemies, even though they might look powerful, they don't have a chance. But that's not the only objection that Moses had. Look down in verse 13, Moses says, What if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Remember that Moses had failed at his first attempt to be a deliverer. And the person who he had tried to deliver said to him, Who made you prince and judge over us? So Moses would have felt very insecure about going back to the people of Israel and would have wondered whether they were going to accept him as the deliverer. Well, God tells Moses to tell the people of Israel that I am has sent him to them. And he gives Moses his covenant name, Yahweh, which is basically the noun form of the verb, I am. Basically, this um, covenant name is represented as capital L-O-R-D in your English Bible. And it represents the everlasting nature of God. He is not just the God of the past, but he is the God of the present and the God of the future. And notice he tells Moses in verse 16 to gather the elders and tell them what the Lord intends to do. And he assures Moses in verse 18 that they will listen to his voice. You know, one of the big objections that you might have if God has put a burden on your heart for some ministry or mission is that you might be afraid that when you tell someone, they will laugh in your face. But if the great I am is sending you, then he will give you favor in the eyes of people and he will open the doors before you. So, you don't need to worry about what others say. God's favor will be upon you. But there is a final objection. And this objection is not one that's surfaced by Moses, but one that the Lord anticipates that Moses will have. You see, Moses has already said, What about me? (laughs) I feel inadequate. And the Lord has responded by saying, Don't worry, (laughs) I'm going to go with you. And he's already said, What about them? I don't think the people of Israel are going to believe me. And the Lord has said, don't worry, my favor is going to be upon you. But the final objection that was in Moses' heart, and I think the Lord anticipates it. As we've said already, he already objected. He said, what about me and what about them? But I think the final objection of Moses was this. What about him? (laughs) What about Pharaoh? Pharaoh? Remember, Moses had fled for his life in fear of Pharaoh. Now, sure enough, the old Pharaoh had died, but that didn't really matter. The new Pharaoh would have been as bad. How would Pharaoh, the greatest king of the time, who reigned over the greatest kingdom of the time, feel about this shepherd, this nobody coming into his presence and asking him to let his slaves go? Well, the Lord told Moses the truth. Look down in verse 19. He says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. In other words, the Lord says, I know it's going to be hard. You're going to suffer resistance. Pharaoh's not going to like it. It reminds me of what um, Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 and verse 23. He says that the Holy Spirit testifies to me. That in every city, imprisonments and afflictions await me. You know, there will be resistance when you go on mission for Jesus. But he also says this in verse 20. He says, So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And then he will let you go. And that's exactly what happened. So not only did the Lord promise that His presence would go with Him and that His favor would be upon Him, but also that His power would be demonstrated through Him. You know, Jesus said to His disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In other words, Australia. And so even though We can expect if we give God our feet, it is going to be difficult. Life on mission is going to be difficult. There will be resistance. Jesus promises that his presence will be with us. His favor will be upon us and his power will be working through us. And we can be assured that in the end, God will complete His mission just like He completed the mission of delivering His people out of Egypt. God will complete the mission. You know, as we read at the end of the book of Revelation, there will be people from every nation, tribe, and tongue who will say blessing and honor and glory be unto the Lamb who was slain. So how do you become a person whom God can use? Well, as we've seen today, the people whom God uses turn aside when God interrupts their lives and they turn back to him in surrender, choosing to go where he sends them because they are assured that his presence will go with them, his favor will be upon them and his power will be displayed through them. You know, many people and even many Christians waste their lives because they follow the script that our culture has written for them. That life is about the pursuit of personal pleasure. Now, While there's nothing wrong with having a hobby like collecting shells, and we all need various hobbies in our lives. I have hobbies and I hope you do too. You and I were created for something much more than just collecting shells. You and I were made for God's pleasure. We were made to declare the fame of Jesus among the nations. And your soul will only find the satisfaction that it's looking for. Not in following what boating, camping, fishing says. Getting out every weekend and living it up. Your soul will only find the satisfaction that it's looking for when you come back to God in surrender and when you live your life on his mission. So is the Lord calling you to turn aside today and to ponder? Maybe you've been out of fellowship with the Lord for some time and God cannot use you because he doesn't really own you. Remember, he's a gentleman. He's not going to twist your arm, but he invites you to come back to him daily. Say, Lord, I am yours. So I want to give you two applications as I close this message. Application number one, ask yourself, where is the Lord sending me? If you're a Christian, you are a missionary. Obviously, some of us are called to go on foreign mission. But all of us, even though we may not be called to go overseas, we are all called to contribute to Jesus's mission. So where has God called you and sent you? Are you willing to surrender your feet and go where he is sending you? And second application, what objections are you hiding behind? What about me? What about them? What about him? Do you feel inadequate? Do you feel like no one will believe you? Bring your inadequacy before the Lord. And stand on his promise that his presence will go with you. His favor will be upon you. and His power will be demonstrated through you. Well, let us pray. Father, we come before you today. And Lord, we are completely inadequate in ourselves. But we sense in this moment that you are calling to us through your word to come back to you in surrender, to offer our feet to you so that you can use us on your mission. Lord, I pray for anyone today who's been out of fellowship for some time that they wouldn't continue to harden their heart to the voice of Jesus. But because of your grace, they would hear the sweet voice of Jesus saying to them, calling their name, calling them back, And they would respond and say, here I am, Lord. You can have all of me and use all of me for your mission. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.